Amen. Thank you, Pastor Brenda, for those prayers. Um, Church, it's good to be with you all today. If you look on your bulletin, a few times a year we do this notes fill in the blank thing. And for those that were here last time when we did this, we know we're probably going to be covering a lot of ground when you see this many bullet points. And um, so we will be. So we want to make this easier for you um, with these notes. If you need a pen, the, the ushers will um, get a pen to you. Um, just lift up your hand and they'll, they'll bring that to you. So I would recommend um, that as we dig in today. We are three weeks into this Jesus Way series, and what this is looking at is this diagram, this overlap where heaven and earth were separated at the fall, but God's intention, God's plan the whole time is to bring them back together, first through the people of Israel, then through Jesus Christ, and so this series is a way to look at how did Jesus do that? How does he expand that overlap? How does he bring his kingdom? What does new creation look like in these spaces? We started with faith in the wilderness and that we can't ignore the wilderness that you might be in, that you can be safe or brave, and there's a need to be brave as God brings you into the wilderness, and also holding on to Jesus, holding on to him at the center. Last week, Pastor Brenda gave us an important sermon on the Holy Spirit, that the Holy Spirit is personal. It's not an it, that all Christians have the Holy Spirit, but does the Holy Spirit have you? Today, we look at unity or uniformity. Now, I'm guessing that most of us prefer uniformity. I'm guessing most of us have friendships with people that are mostly like ourselves. Maybe same political ideas, maybe same interests, maybe same ideologies, because there's less to disagree about, and that's okay. But what if that is all of our relationships are with people that are just like us? What might we lose out on if we don't hear diverse perspectives, right? If we're not in proximity with people that are different from ourselves, do we end up in an echo chamber where everything we believe is just reinforced because everybody around us, from our friends to our news outlets to our ideologies are all just being reinforced. We're not stretched and we're not growing. So. We know that the world has become more and more divided, more polarized. Things are more black and white, and there's been less room for gray. And I think this presents the perfect opportunity for the church. In these places, in this time, we have an opportunity to speak in, to lift this up. Now, today we're looking at, it may be Jesus' longest prayer. I didn't count the words, but it is a long prayer from Jesus. And he is nearing the end of his ministry, and he is praying to the Father. And I would encourage you to look at all of John 17. We'll be looking at some of it today. So let us begin with prayer. God, I thank you that you are here, and I pray that your Holy Spirit, Your presence, God, is with us and helps us to unpack and to uncover and discover more of who you are today. In your name, amen. So John 17, verse 11, I will remain in the world no longer. 
But they are still in the world. This is the disciples. And I am coming to you, Holy Father. Protect them by the power of your name, the name you gave me, so that they may be one as we are one. There's an urgency here to Jesus's prayer. He is leaving and the disciples are staying and he is desiring that they be unified. He uses the phrase Holy Father, which is a rare one for Jesus to use. He uses it, I think, because of the importance and the challenge of the unity of his followers. He wants their protection, but this protection is to bring unity He wants them to experience the same connection that the Father and the Son experience. Verse 20, my prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message. So not just the disciples, but for all of the followers of Jesus, that all of them may be one. Father, just as you are in me and I am in you, may they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory you gave me, that they may be one as we are one, I and them, and you and me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you sent me, and have loved them even as you have loved me. You think unity is important to Jesus? (laughs) think it's on his heart? Just a little bit, right? Just a little bit. So he prays this for all of his followers. Verse 23 says, I in them and they in me. It's not possible to have unity amongst believers unless it is centered on Christ himself. Our relationship, being with Jesus, growing in Jesus, matures us. And mature believers are unified. What will this unity show the world, right? It will show the world that Jesus is, in fact, sent by God. This is what he's praying. The world will believe that I am who I say I am based on the unity of the followers. Has this prayer been answered? Not yet. Right? He wants the world to know that Jesus was sent by God, that he loves them. And he wants our unity to be what they can look at as an example of that. This is so important to Jesus because it matters. It matters for the body of Christ and it matters for our witness in the world. Now, every believer I've talked to has said, yeah, unity is important. But then there's a whole list of criteria in order to have this unity. Yeah, unity is important. Yeah, John 17, yeah, yeah, that's important. But, and then there's all these caveats, these ways that we can't be unified, these lists of particular beliefs, of behaviors that don't allow unity to actually happen. Yeah, 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 unity is important, but, and really not as important as Jesus makes it to be. See, Jesus leads by example. This is the the Jesus way. There are lots of ways to do life in this world, and we're looking at how does Jesus do it. And I want to lift up just four of his disciples. Now, those are um, 
four different disciples. One, Matthew, the tax collector, upper left here. Um, he is a collaborator with the Roman government, right? He is sort of sold out to Rome. He is oppressing his own people. You have Simon the Zealot, who is really the opposite of that. The Zealots were overthrow Rome by any means necessary. Use violence if needed. I wonder how well Matthew and Simon got along. Then there's Peter, this stubborn, gruff, impulsive person. And then you have Nathaniel, who really is kind of xenophobic. He's an elitist. He said, can anything good come from Nazareth, right? And some reason, somehow, Jesus thought it was a good idea to bring all these very different people together. Why? Why was this a good idea? Do you think they had disagreements? Right? They had different ideas on how the Messiah was to do the kingdom, how he was to do new creation, very different ideas on who the Messiah should be and how he should do it. And yet Jesus brings them together to show a different way, to show that there is something else that needs to be at the center of their lives and how they are to live. See, there's nothing strong enough to hold us together that is stronger than Jesus Christ. He's the one that is meant to be at our center. Now, how have churches tried to go after this idea? This is not a new struggle for the world to be unified. I um, have looked at this book by Mark Baker called Centered Set Church, and it's based off some works back in the 90s. I was first exposed to this idea of a centered set church in the 90s, and it was really interesting to think through, how do we do this? And the subtitle there, you might not be able to read, Discipleship and Community Without Judgmentalism. And so I want to unpack this concept that he explores in this book between bounded and centered, okay? Now, let's think about this um, in a couple of different ways. First, and I'm going to write, these are stick figures, if even my stick figures are difficult to understand. It's about the, the capacity of, of my uh, artwork. I rarely use a whiteboard um, for this very reason. Okay. So you've got these people, right? You've got these different groups. You've got a group, and yet there is this line. There's this boundedness between people. And, and most churches function with this idea of not a boundary, but being bounded. This is a fence, if you will, that has to be hopped in order to be in the in group here, right? It is meant to distinguish people, insiders and outsiders. And if you do everything that's required to be in the in group, then you are in, right? I grew up in a church where right beliefs were this line. And not just that Jesus Christ was Lord, but belief after belief after belief, a whole list of things, and not just beliefs, but behaviors. In order to belong in this group, you need to behave like this, this, and this, and you need to believe X, Y, and Z. And then we will let you in. And sometimes we don't even... Um, we're not even explicit sometimes about those lines, but we communicate them unintentionally about what it means to be in here. Is it how you dress, right? Is it how you spend your time? Is it the type of work that you do or don't do? And this boundary actually creates division. 
So there are three things that lines do, and this is um, important for us to realize. One, they distinguish people, right? Two, they provide security for those in the inside group, right? There's a unity here, right? But it's actually a unity because of exclusion. They also provide a sense of superiority, a self-righteousness. If, if you're on the inside and people are on the outside, we feel good about ourselves. Lines are always self-serving. They're drawn to benefit ourselves. Now, a bounded church, right? If you're in a bounded church, your identity is defined by a boundary line. Who is in and who is out? What do you believe? You have to believe this and you can't believe that. If you don't fit on the inside group, maybe you're shamed or shunned or ignored. And so your identity is based mostly on these lines. Now, you think, okay, lines aren't good. Let's get away from that, right? Let's, let's erase this line. Let's not have that line, right? And, and then what does that do? Now, no lines are good, but not sufficient, right? This is called kind of a fuzzy church, if you will. Uh, they don't have lines, but there is not a firm center. And, and my contention is having no lines is a good thing, but you can be just as judgmental as a line church. Your lack of lines can now become a new line, if you will. And not having a center, again, doesn't provide enough of an impulse, a motivation, a centering to be unified. So what is strong enough to unify? A centered church, the center is Jesus. The center is who he is, bringing people to him, caring about the direction of people. Which way are they going? Are they heading towards Jesus? Do they want Jesus? Do we need to help them see Jesus more clearly and not this arbitrary line of now you are a safe person, right? That believes all the right things, who behaves in all the right ways. So we seek to liberate people from a view of God that puts up boundaries between them and God and between us and fellow believers. If we see God as judgmental and harsh, we're probably in a bounded set. And maybe at some point we've been on the outside of that line and have been hurt by it. But we as a community desired centered values, desire Jesus Christ at the center of all things. So how does this work in, in practical ways? Um, one, um, if you've been in our core class, you have seen this, and we've presented this as well in um, Sundays before. But this idea of three levels of belief, I grew up in a system where every belief was at the same level. So if you took one of those beliefs away, the whole thing crumbled. You had to defend everything your particular church believed in. But convictions are essential to the gospel, and this is in your notes page as well. They're central to the gospel. Jesus Christ is Lord and Savior. He is our cornerstone, the solid ground that we stand on. It's our first value. If you look at our website, Christ-centered, right? We love because he first loved us. We seek intimacy and relationship with God, right? We are Christ-centered community, which means we are centered around and driven by the life message, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ Christ. 
So that first level is convictions. This is who we are at the heart of our church. It's the most important thing we believe is our belief about Jesus Christ. That's our center. That's what we want to be following, walking towards, inviting other people to experience. Second level of beliefs are persuasions. They're important but non-essential. Now, over the last 2,000 years, Christians have had disagreements about a lot of different things, right? Um, Historically, slavery, right? You had Christians using the Bible to support the idea of slavery. You had Christians that would read Scripture and think the earth was at the center of the universe. When telescopes started to be invented and people questioned that, those people were called heretics, right? For saying that maybe the earth was not the center. People had misunderstood the message of Scripture. In the Reformation, we see baptism, different views of baptism, and fellow Christians killing one another because of their differences in their beliefs and practice with baptism or communion. In my lifetime, I've seen fights over spiritual gifts. Is speaking in tongues still a thing? Is prophecy still a thing? Issues and questions about gender, identity, and sexual orientation. Women in ministry. And I have seen all of these things used as, no, unity is not that important. That's not what Jesus had in mind, right? He couldn't have meant you'd be unified in that. And why we rank these things is because not everything is essential to our gospel, right? We have differences in this level two at community church, and that's okay because those persuasions are not what unify us. Jesus Christ is what unifies us. He's what brings us together. And when we can talk and be in community, we can learn from one another on different sides of issues. Inclusive is one of our values. We value the image of God in all people and believe that everyone matters. We embrace our diversity as we walk in unity and seek to be community that is loving, welcoming, inclusive to everyone. See, if we don't have diversity, right, we can be our own echo chamber. We can draw lines that we're not even aware of. We miss our blind spots. I love how author Bridget Eileen Rivera says it. She says, we must learn to embody our convictions in a way that is faithful to the Holy Spirit's witness in our lives without denying the work of the Holy Spirit in the lives of other people. See, when we put these lines up, we're saying you're not really a true follower of Jesus, right? We're denying that God is working and they are believers as well. The third level is opinions, things that churches will often divide on as well, whether that's musical style or governance or color of the carpet. I have seen churches divide on such things, right? So we need a little humility as we approach our beliefs. We need a little humility to realize we're not always going to get it right. I love this cartoon that I saw. This is a teacher in maybe a membership class, and this is a a sort of a, a flow chart, starting with Jesus at 1 AD and all the lines that are breaking out, Christians and Christian movements throughout history. So this is where our movement came along and got the Bible right. (laughs) Jesus is so lucky to have us, right? And it hopefully does seem funny to us, but I've been in context where that really was how it was embodied. There's something like 45,000 different denominations in the world. Different denominations, 45,000, right? So we approach this with humility 
as we come to Christ. All right, I want to talk about this phrase, disputable matters. So we're, we're talking about the Jesus way. He's praying for unity. He's, he's embodying this diversity amongst his own disciples. He probably could have been more efficient had he had everybody be the same, less sort of arguments. And let's now take a look at how does the early church take this teaching, this prayer from Jesus about unity, how do they take it to heart? So let's, I want to look at one sort of example in Romans, and Romans is a big book. Um, and actually, if you want to read through all of Romans, I would suggest starting with the end first. It reads better backwards, um, and um, not like every line backwards, but start with chapter 15 and chapter 14, and then you can go back to the beginning to give context. G- Paul is really sort of hoping for unity amongst the Christians in Rome. And we dig into kind of the heart of the challenge today. It was a hot button issue for them, food sacrifice to idols, and which day is holy to worship. These were biblical arguments. They're wrestling with God's teaching on, can we eat food that is sacrificed to idols? As, as Christianity was spread throughout the Roman world, that became much more of a common thing for the Gentiles because so much of the food that was available had been offered in sacrifice to other idols, to other gods. So it's an issue of idolatry. We can think, oh, food sacrifice to idols, what, what does that even matter? It was an issue of idolatry, and idolatry as we know, right, is a key issue for every believer, is there something that is more important in our lives than God? It was the issue of morality. It was the issue of their worship. So what does Paul say here in Romans 14? Start with verse 1. Accept the one whose faith is weak, without quarreling, over disputable matters. One person's faith allows them to eat anything, but another whose faith is weak eats only vegetables. The one who eats everything must not treat with contempt or despise the one who does not. And the one who does not eat everything must not judge the one who does, for God has accepted them. One person considers one day more sacred than the other. Another considers every day alike. Each of them should be fully convinced in their own mind. You then, why do you judge your brother or sister? Or why do you treat them with contempt? For we will all stand before God's judgment seat. It is written, As surely as I live, says the Lord, every knee will bow before me. Every tongue will acknowledge God. So then each of us will give an account to ourselves to God. Therefore, let us stop passing judgment on one another. Instead, make up your mind not to put a stumbling block or obstacle in the way of a brother or sister. If your brother or sister is distressed because of what you eat, you are no longer acting in love or walking in love. Do not, by your eating, destroy someone whom Christ died. Let us, therefore, make every effort to do what leads to peace and to mutual edification or building up one another. So whatever, verse 22, you believe about these things, keep between yourself and God. Blessed is the one who does not condemn himself by what he approves. What Paul is saying here is that we are not going to let our differences about these things be an issue of exclusion. We're not going to say your view on these, this food or which day is now a reason to draw a line between us. We are in, and you who are less mature are out. He says, let us not fight over these things. 
See, Paul is less concerned about giving the right answer than he is with how Christians treat each other. Convincing someone else that they have the wrong view is not the goal. But in verse 19, to pursue what makes for peace and mutual edification, that is the goal of what Paul wants to see happen. Paul freely announces his own moral stance about the food, right? He's like, it's okay, right? It doesn't really matter which day we observe a Sabbath. He emphasizes the freedom we have in Christ. But at the same time, he wants to honor those who disagree. He pushes for an approach that keeps the main thing the main thing. And what is the main thing? Jesus Christ, Lord and Savior. He wants to encourage us to live in mutual upbuilding and in love without debates about what is not necessary. So Paul tells the Romans this, not to quarrel over disputable matters, verse 1. Not to despise or to have contempt or pass judgment on Christians who disagree. Three, that it's more important to keep acting in love or walking in love. Four, pursue peace and edification. And finally, not to let our differences cause division. Another quote from Bridget Eileen Rivera, she says, we do not always need to oppose perspectives that don't fall in line with our own. Living at peace with our faith doesn't require combat. See, when everybody in the church was in agreement, Paul says, let's take action. But when there was serious disagreement within the body of Christ, Paul encourages people to follow their consciences and to allow other believers to do the same. See, church is not primarily a place to be with like-minded people that we all agree on our sameness. It's to be with people that might have differences on a lot of different areas. But it's to be a people that center on Jesus Christ. Rachel Halevin says it this way. She says, the church is not a group of people who believe all the same things. The church is a group of people caught up in the same story with Jesus Christ at the center. He is so much bigger than any difference that we have. And he desires to be at the center of each of our lives. I wish the church had taken Jesus and Paul's words to heart these last 2,000 years. Because, friends, there are a lot of people who have been wounded by these lines that get drawn over and over again and people pushed out, not included. I wish the church would have followed Paul's encouragement to allow for disputable matters and that we don't all have to agree on everything. But what I am encouraged by is that this is the very heart of our DNA. This is the very heart of how we do church at community, that we can be bridge builders, that we can be people that knock down walls, that we can be people that welcome people across those fences that maybe once they were told was a barrier between them and God. Why does this matter? Why am I passionate about this? Because... I've talked to people on the other side, right? I used to be a line drawer, right? I used to be somebody pushing people on the other side or saying, you're not in. And I've had to confess and repent to that approach. I've talked to people who have heard that these lines are more important 
Unless you believe all of this, unless you behave in the right way, you are on the outside. This matters because people matter to God. We matter to God. So church, let us be a church that says, Jesus Christ, Lord and Savior, that's what we are all about. And we want to invite people to it. The worship team is going to play. And um, I would like to invite our prayer ministers forward. And um, Pastor Brenda and I will be up here as well. Um, Firstly, I have a sense that, you know, maybe there is somebody here that has been on the other side of a line. They've been told that. They've felt that shame. And um, if that's you today, I want you to come forward and be prayed for. I think there may be others, someone like me who was drawing these lines and and you want to come forward and you want to confess and you want to repent. Maybe there's others that, um, you know, I was listening to, to Drew's sermon while I was away and he talked about who's our Nineveh. Maybe there's somebody in your life that it is so hard to bridge that gap for. It's so hard to do community with and um, you need prayer today for that. Let's pray. God, we know that you desire unity in the church. God, you desire to have us put you at the center of all things, to not put ourselves there, God. God, following you is hard. And and may we be a people that doesn't make it harder for others, putting up barriers and obstacles and lines. God, may we be a people that invites everybody to you, the giver of life. In your name, Jesus. Amen.